Hello, and welcome to this week's episode of the Beautiful Business Podcast, brought to you by The Wow Company. I'm your host, Ewan Sang, and this week we are joined by Ritam Gandhi. Ritam worked as a consultant for a decade for the likes of Accenture and Bank of America Merrill Lynch before, in 2014, going on to found Studio Graphene, a firm that specializes in developing amazing blank canvas tech products. Working with many startups alongside innovation teams in more established companies, the London-based agency plans, designs, and builds outstanding tech products for its clients. What's more, Ritam and the team also use their experience and expertise to help leaders grow their business from ideation to launch and beyond. In this episode, Ritam and I talk about the challenges of growing a global agency, how to balance the cost, speed, and quality equation, and how to achieve cultural alignment internationally. Let's jump straight in. Ritam, let's talk about growing an international agency in order to bring ideas to life. Do you want to um, give us a bit of background to your journey so far with Studio Graphene? How did it start and where are you now? So I started about nine and a half years ago. And when I started working at Studio Graphene, I still joke, I was in another job. It was a side hustle in effect. And I was contracting and using that contracting, those earnings from those contracting work to fund payroll for the first couple of folks at Sphereographene, who are ironically still here. So we always joke that technically they were employed by Sphereographene before I was. And the concept then was really wanted to be involved in helping entrepreneurs in the digital ecosystem and, and helping them bring their ideas to life. The premise there in terms of what drove that mission was we thought there's a lot of opportunity for technology to be a force for good, for digital innovation to be a force for good. But Talking about it and, you know, doing strategy and PowerPoints around it didn't really solve that. You needed to implement it. You needed products to make people's lives better. And generally, everyone I spoke to who spoke about their ideas but didn't do something about them said that it was either because they were scared of, you know, taking the leap of faith and working on it. Or it was too expensive, you know, putting together a team, employing a cross interdisciplinary team or hiring a nice agency was really expensive. Or they were worried about the time it would take and the world moves so fast. And, you know, if they did it on the side and spent a couple of years on the business, what if that need had disappeared or someone else was working on it? And I thought, I really want to try and address those three challenges and build a team that makes it less scary for founders uh, to embark on that mission, makes it less expensive and makes it speedy. So that was where Studiography started. We were fully London-based. The premise was we will sit in London and we will be an interdisciplinary team that will take accountability end-to-end for bringing your idea to life. So you can be a founder. You don't need to worry about traditional product. You don't need to worry about defining your requirements or creating the designs or doing the engineering or deploying it. And fast forward a little bit on the journey, we realized that I remember that, you know, I come from a professional services background, so I worked at Accenture Capital, et cetera. And, you know, there is a subtle bit or maybe not so subtle, actually, you're taught that, you know, you need to find clients have money to pay for professional services and working and targeting startup, early stage startup founders, that goes against that advice. So it was definitely very challenging commercially. And what we realized very quickly was doing engineering work, sitting in central London, competing with engineering work being done offshore, nearshore, whatever terminology you want to use, but basically in other countries where engineers are paid less than they're paid in London, hence companies can charge less for it, was really challenging. So we realized it wasn't scalable working with startups who were conscious about how much they were paying for their work. 
and sit in central London. You know, the two were divergent. So we started subcontracting some of the work to Eastern Europe, to India, etc., predominantly to India with a very specific outsource provider that we partnered with. And over time, we realized that the costs and quality balance wasn't as good as we wanted. Essentially, the quality suffered by not having it in-house, I think is fair to say. And so we would bring in some of the work back in-house in London and realize, well, the cost equation wasn't working. And I think what working with startups and essentially a product agency for startups was we really had to work hard to achieve that cost and quality equation and the balance. So, you know, central London too expensive, but we could get the quality right. Low cost location, outsourced, cheaper, but couldn't get the quality right. And what we started to develop was this idea of a hybrid model where we realized, A, that things needed to be done in London, such as product management and design, because you need a lot of contextual knowledge. And B, we realized the engineering needed to be in-house, but in a low cost location and bring that together. Sounds really simple, except it wasn't. And taken as many years. So we started on this particular journey of kind of an in-house international team about five and a half, six years ago, maybe now. And very gradually, most of that growth has come in the last three years. And it's been really challenging. And, you know, I know I'll, we'll speak about it a bit more, but fast forward and where we are now, we're about 130 people in four locations. We have clients that are startups, corporates, ambitious businesses, professional services, partnerships, where we are helping them deliver high quality output for low cost. And recently, we've all also started our own ventures. You know, we've talked about Telson in the past, and we've talked about some of our own products. But we're also embarking on our own ventures and reinvesting essentially the vast majority of our profits back into our business. So exciting. And goodness me, what a journey you've been on, Ritam. There's a few, there's lots to unpack in that, actually. So I guess the process that you went through, first of all, I love the story that you use your kind of contracting and revenue to start up studio graphing as a side hustle. I think lots of founders kind of do it that way. And interestingly, I had a conversation with a relatively early stage agency where they were effectively doing freelance work, but billing it through their limited company in order yeah. to kind of build, you know, that capital reserve and to kind of go that kind of way. But I've got all these questions that are kind of popping in my head. First one's first, though. Your background was working for the likes of Accenture. Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, and things like that. Forgive me for saying this, but it's quite a jump from working in corporate, you know, in the, the financial services world into startups and not only just startups, but also that kind of purpose-driven element of startups, almost like democratizing the opportunity for entrepreneurialism, you know, getting rid of some of those big barriers that lots of entrepreneurs kind of face, one of them being cost, the other one being, you know, expertise, so on and so forth. Where did that come from? How did you kind of bridge that? What happened there? I'm not sure if I've still bridged it, but it's, I think I went, firstly, I was passionate about what we do at Pseudography and what we were doing. I'll be candid and I'll say that I wasn't passionate necessarily about what I was doing within large banks or large consultancies. But at the same time, I really respected everyone I worked with. And I think the big benefit of spending roughly a decade in, in working at very large institutions was that it did instill a sense of discipline and work ethic within me. It did give me exposure to understand how a large-scale organization works. It did ensure that I was surrounded by very smart people who I could learn from. So it gave me a very strong foundation. But when I started Pseudographene, I unpacked it by going back to first principles on everything. So I said, I will question everything. 
I will not do this just because Accenture did it this way or Bank of America did it this way. And I will just question it logically. And so it did mean that I went to the other extreme. I built an extremely autonomous organization with practically no processes. And, you know, you start to realize as you grow, you find a middle ground and at different stages, you find a middle ground. But it was two extremes. It was very different delivering for startups, right? So I'll give you a classic story. But when I started Graphene, I know part of kind of large-scale professional services delivery is that you ask your clients, what's your priority between speed, cost, or quality, right? Pick one. And I remember sitting across a startup founder, you know, using my professional services training pedigree. I was like, so let's start with what's your priority? Is it speed, quality, or cost? And the founder looked at me blank-faced and was like, is that a trick question? Obviously, all three. All three are equal priority, and you have to achieve all three. And I think that was the real wake-up call for me. And we have really focused on all three. Fabulous. And that journey of focusing on those three things, you mentioned it when you started off with the outsource partner in order to kind of balance the cost part of that equation. But then you quickly discovered that the quality part of that equation was harder to maintain. What were the signals there? What were the warning signs that you spotted that motivated you to look at this hybrid model or to pursue the hybrid model? So I've realized quality comes from a sense of control and being able to control things. Quality comes from a sense of alignment. And also quality comes from a sense of passion, right? And so having working with ex- an in-house team, you know, we can go into payroll versus contractor, et cetera, but essentially working with a consistent team that allows you a sense of control. It also allows you to build a sense of alignment because you're bringing them on board and they're on the journey. And you can also align them alongside your mission and what you stand for and what you're trying to do and why you're trying to do it, which allows for passion, right? So it, it makes them want to deliver quality. And I think like a classic example of control is if we recruit ourselves rather than outsource the work, we can choose who works on it and we can ensure they're aligned with the quality standards, with our values, et cetera. So that's an example of control, right? I can go on and on about it, about systems and processes. Alignment as an example we all traveled quite a lot before COVID and we tried to meet each other because you then create alignment between the teams, right? And passion came from really celebrating our wins together, explaining what was good and what was not good together. So I think it's that whole idea of feeling like one team, even in different geographic locations and behaving like one team rather than feeling like there's pseudography in another company through which we get the work done. And I guess having that, the word control, I guess, is the most accurate, but it's having that connection, I guess, in terms of the people in the recruitment process and I guess the communication and the messaging, the way that you engage with the teams, there's that consistency across the whole team, irrespective of the location. Yeah. And, you know, we live in a world where a lot of us work from home, work remotely, et cetera. But I believe that relationships are built face to face, right? I think you can then communicate virtually, but out of all the relationships that you have, I'm sure the ones that have been accelerated in terms of how close you feel to a person is because you've had a face-to-face interaction once in your lifetime, right? And so we facilitated that travel so that people met face-to-face. And these were our learnings, right? We didn't know this, but someone went and met the engineers they were working with and came back and we saw their project was going really well and they were already happy. And and so we were like, oh, this matters. So 
we were learning things as we were going along with it. But yeah, absolutely. I think that sense of togetherness is so important, right? Because it creates empathy for each other. Sorry, just to be clear, and you continued this facilitation of travel and face-to-face post-COVID as well as pre-COVID. Absolutely. So I think the vast majority of our senior product managers went to Delhi in April after an overnight flight. They went out that night with the whole team. And yeah, so COVID in some ways was a bit of a spanner in the works because for a couple of years that travel was limited. I think, you know, when COVID hit, I can't remember the exact numbers, but we had something like 13 or 14 flights that were active and booked. We had four or five people who weren't in their kind of country of origin out of 60. So we were peak encouraging travel. It's taken a while to get back into the swing of things in terms of travel, but yeah, Yeah. we are doing it. It really helped because that, that we managed to meet pre-COVID. So I'm glad a lot of that had gotten out of the way. And I think it carried us through COVID. But yeah, that was a challenge, definitely. I bet. I bet. It's really interesting that you've seen the value of a pre-COVID. Lots of people didn't really realize it until the kind of post-COVID kind of world. But the interesting thing that came out of COVID was, as you say, with remote working, with Zoom, and all the other tools that enable kind of distance connections, that human connection is still so important. And it's impossible to replicate. I mean, you know, it's like you and I, you know, whenever I'm popping up in London, I always drop a quick message to you to see if you're around because it's obviously the pleasure of each other's company, but there is something which you can't replicate through a video screen. As much as Zoom and these tools have made the world a little bit smaller, there's still that barrier. They say 80% of communication is body language, right? So another stat that you might love is that out of 130 people in Studio Graphene, I am the only person who comes in five days a week. There's no one else. All 129 people come in far less. So, and the reason is I want to make myself available. I would argue it's also partially that I have a one and a half year old son and I live in a small central London apartment, but I want to be available. I want to be able to have, you know, just this morning, I've had three or four random conversations that have triggered things because I have, you know, Thursdays tend to be popular days when people come in. And so I do think we've learned that we can be in different geographies. We can be in different places. We don't need to be in five days a week. But never meeting each other is also not good. Yeah. Again, it's very interesting, Ritam, from your perspective, I guess from a leadership perspective of a big organization, 130, having that availability and being accessible is important, not just for you, I guess, just in terms of getting inspiration and seeing how people are doing and getting these ideas and getting that kind of buzz, but also for them as well, for your team as well, to know that they can bump into you and speak with you. And, you know, that perhaps it was you and I that we were speaking before where you lose that spontaneity through Zoom calls and things like this. You know, you might have a spark of an idea or just that little kind of like flicker of, oh, I wonder, you know, what if we did this? And then you think, right, let's see when Ritam is available. Let's yeah, send a yeah, Zoom link. Yeah, make sure you accept. By the time it comes around, it's like all this stuff has happened and this, that, and the other. It's like, Ritam, don't worry about it. We'll talk yeah, about yeah. next time. Yeah. So I think, yeah. I think it's interesting. If you can kind of almost build in, I think five days a week is pretty hardcore, but for other you know listeners who run these types of organizations, you know, don't forget about making yourself available, I guess, is the key thing. So, so we have folks who I won't see for a couple of months. And I think one of the things we've done to address exactly what you've described around, you know, bit of relationship building, conversations, brainstorming, is we've invested in socials, right? So there are folks who never see each other in a working environment, but we'll come to the social. So every couple of months, we'll do a social and there'll be a nice event. We'll go for a nice meal or we'll do something fun like a virtual 
clay pigeon shooting or something. And I think that's really helped because you don't know when you have an idea. You don't know when something pops up in your head that you're like, oh, I should have asked this person about this. But you need to have that line of communication. And I think for me personally on that journey, I've realized that I've started to lose that line of communication with people who are newer and a bit, you know, to be candid, a bit more junior. Because if someone senior joins and they report to me, I'll speak to them. If someone's been around for a long time, regardless of their seniority, I'll speak to them or they will speak to me, right? Because they've had that, they feel it's an open line of communication because of the past. But I do really feel a bit disconnected personally from someone who's new and doesn't report to me. And I'm sure they do too. And it's probably a personal goal that I have to figure it out because of we're still not a thousand people, right? We're not thousands of people. Everyone should feel comfortable speaking to me. I should feel comfortable speaking to everyone. And we should have some sort of line of communication. But I have struggled as we've grown doing that, especially through COVID. I spend, or even now, I spend most of 95% of my time in London. So, you know, the team here has a lot of access to me and I speak to them a lot. But in Portugal and in India and Piero in Switzerland, it's like I've had very limited interaction. So that I really want to figure out i'm not figured yeah, out yeah. there's no easy yeah. answer to that though i guess but certainly from a as you say without hopping on a plane and getting out there it's harder to do and i guess it's one of the challenges of growing an international agency that you still need to get a head around but Rich, don't give yourself too hard a time dude i mean like you know, no, no. <laughs> you know i consider you one of the most approachable people that i know and the fact that it's on your mind i think says a lot you know that you realize that it's important and that you are trying to work out how you can crack that nut but it can't you know, as I said, like any good problem, there's no easy solutions, is there? You know, it's no, there is interesting. There interesting, interesting. I, I do think the solution is, as you said, jump on a plane, spend. And I think the reason I see that solution in sight, and I think one of the hardest things is growing, growing internationally, growing bootstrapped. So as an example, it wasn't like I could create a management team and say, hey, folks, you're the managers and I can spend time on making sure I'm spending more time and being more accessible to the rest of the team because didn't have the funding for it, right? So until a few years ago, we didn't have someone who was in charge of finance. We didn't have someone who was in charge of growth. We didn't have someone in charge of marketing. We didn't have someone in charge of CS. It was all kind of me, I guess, to some extent. And, and gradually, you know, we first got marketing covered, then we got finance covered, we got, you know, CS, and then we got growth. And and it's been, so I think as our leadership team comes together, it is giving me a bit more bandwidth to focus on being approachable. So it's, I think my learning is that you have to be patient. You can't tackle everything concurrently. You have to look at what's the most pressing area and also look at your ability and capacity to tackle it. But different things at different stages. Um, yeah. It's a similar sort of story. We speak to lots of founders where they go through this kind of growth and they gradually let go of you know let go of the lego is what it's often said you, yeah. know, you know let other people play with your lego and bring other people in to create these things build these things and to you know see what they can do as you say freeing up your kind of bandwidth so you can go off and do the other things no you're absolutely right right it is your baby at the end of the day and it's been really interesting letting go internationally again because you're not always in front of someone to discuss the thing you're letting go of yeah. And I feel like there's three things you let go of. One is let go of client relationships, let go of people relationships, and let go of processes or work that you're doing. The easiest I found is the third. I find it really easy to let go of work, right? I don't think there are tasks I would do every day that since we've had RFD on board, I have not done them once in years, right? So I find it very easy to let go and trust people and step away. So that's been easy. I think clients, I think they're better off 
if they don't have to come to me because, you know, sometimes I might not pick up their phone as quickly because I'm in a meeting, et cetera. But I feel like that's probably a bit more mutual. And also definitely from a client perspective, you know, they're used to having worked with me when we have five people, you know, most of our work has come through referrals or existing clients. So it's hard, right? It's just mutually hard. And I'd say maybe a little bit harder for the clients because they haven't been inside the business and seen the growth. The people side is where now I'm most keen to kind of go back in and because, you know, we're a people business. So I want to understand what people feel, what they want to work on, what they think the areas of improvements are. So that's definitely an agenda we're focusing on. So it is interesting what you're letting go of, right? When yeah, yeah, yeah. It's very interesting. It sounds like you've gone from like, you know, very close-knit five people kind of team. You are the team, exactly. you know, you are the people. And, exactly. you've gone, and you've grown at such a rate. And now you kind of come back to like, I need to get back in again. <laughs> exactly. I think you're absolutely right. That's a very good description. It's a very accurate description. Yeah. It's like, it is full circle. It's things so, have changed. Go back in now. So interesting. I just want to go back to, I guess, your journey to getting up to 130. And I sent to you in the notes, you know, we've known each other for a long while. I really do admire, you know, your logic, Ritam. The way that your brain works and the way that you kind of verbalize your thinking is fabulous. And then when you commit to something, you go for it. But when you grow, there's always going to be a bit of risk, a bit of risk taking. And I guess being able to measure means that you can kind of like make a calculation on that risk. But what were those kind of points of your journey that stand out for you every time where you thought, okay, right, we need to make a decision here and we need to expand or we need to hold back or whatever it is. Were there any kind of key points for you in terms of growing that headcount? Yeah, I think, look, I think I have to make risky decisions every week. And there are a few things that determine what risk I can take and what risk I can't take. So when I started the business, you know, someone or before I actually took the leap of faith and I was starting, someone said, you know, you're free to fail. And that really helped me. And I think, you know, the fact that I've had a lot of stakeholders supporting me, whether it's a team, et cetera, who, who supported and given me the authority almost to make mistakes has helped. But I think growth and innovation without risk is impossible. So you have to take risk. And I think what I have preferred doing is taking small but frequent risks rather than big, old, irreversible risks. So classic example, even the way I sort of transitioned to going full-time within Sphereographine was I was contracting five days a week when we got our first hire and started. Then I went four days a week, then I went three days a week, then I went two days a week, then I went one. And then I was, I think it took me, I did the transition over a year, right? I was like, okay, I can, I'm doing this. Then I was half a day a week in contracting, right? So but everything we do, we kind of, we try and take smaller risks. And the big thing I've realized around risk is it's, you have a hypothesis, right? So you say that, and it's a bit like building products. You say, if I build this feature, users will use it and they'll find it useful. You want to in as low a cost and as a shorter time frame, prove or disprove that hypothesis. And so that's kind of how we handle a lot of our decision-making is through constant validation. Is doing this good? Will the team want it? The one area that I'm very conscious of is the hardest area, which I find taking risk is around people and anything that might jeopardize them, right? But everything else I find very easy to take risks around. So that's my only kind of struggle sometimes in terms of risk, in terms of how it impacts the team, but a lot of other things, you know, I really believe in risk. I think you can't grow. And the only thing other than that, that I try and constantly do is what can we do to mitigate that risk, right? Actively. But Aside from that, very pro-risk and, and especially... That's got to be how you do it, Ritam. And clearly, the formula is working. 130, international company, 
you know, running your own kind of investments as well and reinvesting back into the business. It's a formula which is clearly paying dividends. You mentioned that a lot of the growth in terms of the team growth has come in the last three years. What's driven that? What's kind of like prompted or, as I say, kind of tipped you into making the decisions to, you know, press on the higher button? Yeah, I think we always think of product market fit in the startup community and the digital ecosystem, but there is also services market fit, right? I think there's products and services, many ways of similar things. You're providing utility to a customer and the capability to provide end-to-end ownership of digital product delivery from product management design through to engineering to a high standard at a sensible cost, at sensible speed. Grew a lot as the market grew in, in the demand and market for that grew in during COVID. So, you know, 2021, 2020, maybe even a bit in 2020. So, so we've seen spurts, right? And, but really it's been that services market fit or product market fit around providing that interdisciplinary team and being able to really deliver on an outcome end-to-end take accountability so not to say that we're just engineering product or just design it's the end-to-end piece and once we got that really we could demonstrate that and we had credentials to demonstrate it that's what's led to a lot of growth and a lot of our growth to be candid has come on the engineering side right because that's where the depth of delivery is so that's been a big area of growth but it's that realization that answering the question right at the beginning for a client, which is what's your priority? Is it speed, quality, or cost? All three is, is being able to really optimize for that. That's what's led to the growth. Fabulous. And in terms of planning that, and in terms of building the team and recruiting the team, we talked about how important it is to own that kind of recruitment process, know the quality that you're bringing in, the people that you're bringing in, and the, the human side of it as well. That in itself takes time, especially if you're going to do it diligently and you have high standards as well. How did you approach that kind of chicken and egg kind of problem? So you've got the demand, you build the team, or do you build the team in expectation of the demand? I mean, how did you kind of work it? Yeah, so there is a little bit of build the team in expectation of demand and seeing the demand. But I think there are two challenges. The demand also goes downwards. So in the beginning of 2023, end of 2022, you know, maybe 30%, so roughly 35 people in Pseudographene had no client work. But we hung on. We said, you know, as long as you perform, as long as you're committed, we'll be committed to you. So once we have someone who's good and has, I wouldn't even say the right skill set, but the right attitude, more so than skill set, we as a business are very committed to them in return. So that's one thing. One is I think retention is really important and being committed. That addresses recruitment in some ways. But then recruiting has been interesting. With early days, I interviewed everyone, I hired everyone. But obviously, as we scaled, I couldn't do it. And I didn't want to do it because it went against me having this autonomy principle, right? So I didn't want to say, oh, I have to approve every hire, et cetera. There are many people who've joined who have never met before they've joined. But I think if you hire the right people and you make them realize what is important to you, then they hire the right people subsequently and they'll make mistakes. And as would I, and you get it wrong and you move on. So, you know, generally I've found in Pseudography, either the person is joins and we all acknowledge, including the person that's mishired and it's a very quick exit, or it's they're here for a few years, right? So it, it tends to go one of two extremes. But I think my biggest learning around hiring and growth is being very clear about what's important to you. A job description can be two pages long, but there are probably three or four things that are really important to you, right? And being clear about those principles and values and aligning on those is more important than skill set. I think people can pick up skill. And it's been aligning more on principles, values, attitude, and then skill set. That's been the big change for us. 
I remember years and years ago, I used to rent a flat in Bristol in Clifton and the guy that owned the flat used to work for johncharcoal.com, which is a big mortgage broker. He was probably the wealthiest man I'd ever met. Really humble, really lovely, but um, yeah. ridiculous, like, ridiculous. And I rented the basement of his house. He bought like all the flats of this massive townhouse Amazing. and converted it back into one house. But he was lovely. And I remember chatting with him before and, he, and it was just as I was kind of getting onto the management ladder of things. And he said to me, when you hire, when you build, he used to talk about the ask principle and it was attitude, skills and knowledge. And he said there was a secret A hiding behind the first one called application as well. But he said that, you know, when it comes to skills and knowledge, you can train that, you know, Absolutely. you can train that in. But what's really hard to train in is somebody's attitude and how well they apply themselves is really difficult to kind of train in. So hiring on attitude hiring on application trumps that kind of skills and knowledge bit but it's not easy though is it you know it's as you say no. it's how do you measure that how do you measure someone's attitude it's not an easy characteristic to measure against yeah but it's probably the thing that you feel strongest about as a hunch as a yeah it's really interesting but like as a team we rarely have misalignment on let's say three or four of us have interviewed someone we rarely misalign on judging their attitude so we'll rarely say i disagree with you in terms of your judgment of this person's attitude yeah that, that, that's that, really subjective yeah but therein i think lies you know a key answer there in that you've got to I come across a wonderful phrase the other day every time expand your cognitive network uh-huh. have other people there who can also feed into that decision so it's not just on you to kind of like pick up on the hunch and all the rest of it is to kind of get other people in on that decision as well, which really helps. Absolutely. I've got one more kind of a more practical kind of question, I guess, just in terms of the international setup of Studio Graphene. So for listeners who are looking at, you know, international offices or, you know, having teams overseas and things like this, what have you found has worked structurally for having such a dispersed team? I think one is a certain level of scale does help. Because it creates, you know, it's very hard to have two or three people in another location whilst you have 25 people in one location, right? You want to have a certain scale because it allows you to create a structure, it allows you to have a lead, etc. But I think structurally the most important thing is to facilitate integration, right? And right from the day zero. So through travel, through comms, through teams working together on projects, I think that's really important. I think... The other big lesson for me that I've learned is having specialists in those regions advise you on the legal compliance, accounting framework, et cetera. It's, you know, it's a very easy thing that's overlooked. You think, hey, how does it matter? But, you know, one of the things I've learned is we're actually quite lucky that in the UK, you know, by a long stretch, the UK from a compliance and ease of doing business compared to Portugal and India is much, much, much easier, right? So I think structurally getting that right. And I think structurally not getting that right on day zero for me i've made my team's life a little harder uh, and i think be much more proactive structurally on just getting it right set up your company correctly make sure your compliance is perfect make sure and the thing is we did all of this so we've dotted the i's and crossed the t's but i think we could have done it more efficiently had i not sort of not gone through without the right advice at the beginning so i think i think that's important structurally so yeah other than that at a practical level if I had to just give one takeaway, it is make everyone feel integrated. It's not something that's, you know, on paper. It's just a feeling. Like make everyone feel like they're part of one thing rather than two or three different things based on the number of locations you have. A big thank you to Ritan Gandhi from Studio Graphene for sharing his knowledge and experiences. 
And a big thank you to you, our listeners, for listening to this week's Beautiful Business Podcast. Beautiful Business is powered by the Wow Company, who believe that business can be beautiful, that doing the right thing gets results. Wow believes that having a clear purpose and standing up for what you believe in is the secret to building a beautiful, sustainable business, something to be really proud of. If you're dedicated to building a beautiful business, check out wowco.uk forward slash beautiful business.